So a lot of times we, we move through life so fast that we forget to give God uh, praise for the miracles in our lives. And uh, so I just want to share two miracles and sandwich in between that. It, miracle, those two miracles, like an Oreo, is just an awesome testimony about how amazing you are as a church family. So uh, miracle number one, Bob Davis, our, our amazing brother, Bob Davis, who is on the leadership team of the Ark. He does puppets and plays the accordion and all kinds of other things. Uh, a few nights ago, I forget the exact night, but it was one of those cold nights. Not the coldest, but one of those cold nights. Uh, about quarter to 10 p.m., he slipped in his front yard, fell, broke his hip. No cell phone, couldn't get up, couldn't move. And all he could do was pray and cry out. And so he's crying out, help me, help me, help me. And he lives in a neighborhood in Kirtland that the houses are pretty far apart, uh, at least 30 yards in any direction. And uh, I don't know about you, but when I'm in my house at night, I don't hear anything outside, even if I'm awake. <laughs> Some of you are saying, are you ever awake when you're at the house? So, uh, so he's out, help me, help me. And uh, thankfully, miraculously, the neighbor across the street, so the house farthest away, must not have had the TV on. They heard him. First, uh, the husband thought it was a cat. Boy, that cat's in trouble. And, uh, but Bob kept crying out, help me, help me. And finally, the, the gentleman in the house across the street decided, you know, I better go check and see what's going on. And he goes out and he finds Bob, and Bob is rescued. Uh, Bob has had his uh, surgery on his hip. He's at rehab. He's recovering. But, you know, that's a miracle. You know, think, oh, that's cool. But no, God gave that man ears to hear in a supernatural way. Uh, that on a, any regular night, uh, Bob would not have been heard, and uh, the consequences would have been horrible. Uh, so that's miracle number one. So I'll get to miracle number two in a second, but sandwiched in between those two miracles, on that really cold night, uh, Rodney Oler, uh, Betsy and I were visiting Corky um, in the hospital, and Rodney calls, and uh, I, I didn't pick up because we were talking to Corky, but I checked, and you, I think it's cool how you can, like, read the words of the voicemail. Isn't that cool? Yeah, okay, all right, I think that's cool. It's like, sometimes they don't get it right, but close enough. And, and it's Rodney, and he's like, hey, my furnace is out. Uh, do you know any place we could stay for the night? And uh, so I called him, and uh, so Betsy's talking to Corky. I'm talking to Rodney, and, and Rodney explains. And, and uh, I don't know if I had a speakerphone or Corky just has supernatural hearing. But she goes, oh, they can stay at my house. How cool is that? So uh, Rodney says, well, you know, I, we, you know, for different reasons, we, how about we get space heaters? So we sent an email out, uh, like, I don't know, in like 15 minutes, he had nine space heaters uh, lined up. And the coolest part about the whole space heater thing is he drove around to all, all, all of many of your nine different homes to pick up space heaters. So some of you got to meet Rodney and talk to him maybe for the first time. And uh, so it, it was very cool. Just a cool testimony about all of you as a church family caring for one another. And, uh, uh, and the space heaters, um, they're going to bring him to church because he kind of doesn't know who, who gave them all. It was like a confusing night. So you'll get your space heaters back. Don't worry. But um, So that was just a great testimony of all of you as a church family. 
Uh, right? We say no one stands alone, and, and you took care of Rodney and Kelly and Rodney Jr. and uh, Margie, uh, Kelly's mom, uh, in a beautiful way. And, uh, and then the, the next miracle, and this doesn't, we kind of take this miracle for granted, but Joseph Kovats is 10 today. Right? Amen. Amen. Oh, there he is. And stand up, Joseph. Doesn't he look like a miracle? You know, 10 years ago, he was born. Life is a miracle. You all are miracles. You being here is a miracle. Life is a miracle. You're a miracle. Amen? Doesn't matter how you feel today. You are a miracle. A gift from God. A gift from God to us. Amen? So, so here's the thing. So Joseph is, is 10, and, and uh, he's, he's one of the older ones amongst the elementary age crew that's running around here and having a blast. So when you see them in the youth center and, and running around chasing each other, I don't want you to think, man, how, how can we get them under control? I want you to think, how can we encourage them to be mighty warriors in God's kingdom? Because that is who God created them to be. A miracle, the miracle of life. Joseph, you're a miracle. All of you are miracles. Amen? Amen. So turn to Romans chapter 3, page 940. You know the guys on the radio at the end of the commercial, they talk like 10 times normal speed, you know? Well, I, I got to kind of do that today. I won't, I won't, I'll talk double speed, okay? But you guys can handle that. So um, I'm going to speed up a little bit here. Um, so if you have life figured out, please raise your hand. All right, good, good. No, I don't think, I didn't see anybody raise their hands, right? None of us have it all together. Uh, all of us have struggles. We desperately need to draw closer to Jesus. We desperately need the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, amen? And so we're all trying to figure out God. We're trying to figure out who he is, who we are, what faith is all about, what eternity is all about. And so we're here. And wherever you're at in your faith, wherever you're at in your faith, we can travel together. We can get closer to Jesus together. We can get closer to each other together. All are welcome, and we say no one stands alone. And if you ever need a space heater, this church family is loaded with space heaters. <laughs> so we're exploring the book of Romans. Uh, we're discovering that faith in Jesus is a dangerous faith. Faith that is dangerous when I say a dangerous faith, it's not dangerous to people, but it's dangerous to the evil and the brokenness and the despair that crushes people's lives. And, uh, you know, when I just said that, I want to I pray for the Super Bowl and not for the Rams or the Colts. They'll do just fine, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, what did I say, the Colts? Okay, the Rams and the Patriots. Yeah, and, uh, but... Part of all of that is, is all, all the parties that go on, and part of all the parties are literally thousands of young women who are trafficked. 
our faith needs to be dangerous to the evil and brokenness and despair in this world. And so let's just pray. Lord, we can't really even comprehend what has gone on, what's going on, what will go on in the young ladies' lives that are trafficked by others for monetary gain. And Lord, we just come against that. We pray for freedom. We pray that uh, by the thousands, those young ladies could escape. Or we pray for those uh, in law enforcement involved in trying to root that out, uh, give them courage and wisdom. Uh, And Lord, we pray for the traffickers. Or would you uh, stop them? Would you break their hearts? Would you open their eyes and their ears and their minds and their hearts to the harm that they're doing? Lord, we pray that your power would be mighty in this situation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, the book of Romans shows us that faith in Jesus is a dangerous faith. God is encouraging us to trade a safe life for a dangerous faith. We're called to trade up and live a dangerous faith. So if you're a believing, trusting, faithful follower of Jesus, you've you've crossed the line, you have received the gift of eternal life, and so you are now living eternally. Eternal life doesn't start when you die and go to heaven. Eternal life starts when you give your life to Jesus. And so you live forever if you're a follower of Christ. So because you live forever, forever, you get to cross back over the line into the valleys, into the darkness, and help others meet Jesus so that they can cross that line and live forever. You get to help others. You get to help others be who God has created them to be. That is awesome. What an awesome thing to get to do. You get to help others be who God has created them to be. And last week we talked that talked about how our lives move in the direction of our hearts. And so if we want to move in the direction of God, our hearts need to be aligned with God's heart. And so we need to be doing just simple things to keep our hearts aligned with God. Simple things like study the Bible and pray. And serve where God's called you to serve. And that will keep our hearts aligned with God. In 1982, and that was a long time ago, I was a senior in college, Tom Peters and Robert Waterman, they authored a book. I'm sure you all remember it well. It's called In Search of Excellence. Oh, a few of you. Okay, good. Uh, It was the big business book in the early 80s. And in this book, they developed this management um, uh, principle. It was called uh, Management by Walking or Wandering Around. Uh, And one of the principles in managing by wandering around was catch the people who work for you doing something right. And this principle was stressed to me as uh, I was about to get commissioned in the Army, and, and we were taught as a young lieutenant, hey, catch your soldiers doing the right thing, 
and praise them and encourage them, and they will continue to do the right thing. Have you ever had someone in your life do that? They would catch you doing the right thing, and they would praise you, and they would encourage you, and you're like, okay, I want to do the right thing again. Anybody have anybody in their life like that? How about the flip side? Have you ever had someone in your life that seemed to have made it their mission in life to catch you making mistakes? <laughs> yeah, a lot more heads nodded on that one, right? You do good work, but everyone makes mistakes, right? And your boss always seems to show up as you're making that one mistake. You ever feel like that? Or perhaps you're the boss, and no matter how much good you do for the people who work for you, you make one mistake, and they never, ever forget it. How about parents who catch every mistake their children make? Or children who catch every mistake their parents make? And let you know about it. I think that's the way, that's the way a lot of people think God is. He is prowling around like a lion, always there waiting, just waiting for us to mess up. And then, boom, he makes us pay for our mistakes. Did you ever think that way about God? Do you know people who do? God is often portrayed as only being interested in our sinfulness. But is that true? God is the creator. God is like an artist. When an artist is creating a painting or a sculpture... As they create, they're thinking, oh, this is going to be good. This is going to turn out amazing. And they see their creation through to completion. This is how God is. We're created in God's image. And as he creates us, he's thinking, oh, Liliana, this is good. This is going to be amazing. And he creates us. In the Bible, it says everything he creates is good, but people are created very good. And he gives us a special role in the universe, in this world. He creates us with beauty for a purpose, and we're created to be the caretakers of life. Right? We're created to be stewards of his creation on this planet. And so the centerpiece of his creation is life. And so he creates us to be caretakers of life. That's significant. God creates us for significance. In fact, our significance is more important to God than our sinfulness. Can I say that again? Our significance is more important to God than our sinfulness. And this is what Paul shows us in Romans chapter 3. So Romans chapter 3, we see that God's, in the first eight verses, God's righteousness prevails. So in order to understand what Paul is writing, remember the whole Jewish-Gentile thing we talked about the last couple weeks? Okay, uh, following Jesus is an extension for Jews of their faith. So Jewish folks who follow Jesus, call themselves Messianic Jews. And so when Paul wrote Romans, 
Jews who were following Jesus were trying to figure it out. Okay, what does that look like? I'm Jewish, but I'm following Jesus. And then Gentiles, who were followers of Jesus, were trying to figure out, okay, I'm following Jesus, but I'm not Jewish. And so this was kind of swirling around in the book of Romans. So you've got to kind of understand that as Paul talks about Jews and Gentiles throughout the book of Romans. And also, uh, just real quick, Paul talks about the law. Okay, the law is the first five books in the Bible, uh, and it provides the foundation for the Jewish faith. Okay, so just a little bit of context there. Now, a definition, we need to have a definition of God's righteousness. So here's the definition. God always acts in accordance with what is right. Parents wish their kids were like that. But so do your parents wish you were like that too, right? God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. God always acts in accordance, in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. Does that make sense? That's God's righteousness. Let me give you an example. Um, so recently I was on YouTube uh, and I don't know, I, I kind of look at the political stuff sometimes and, and then have a heart attack and then don't look at it for a while. But I, I was watching a senator uh, grill, interrogate, uh, ask questions of the pending director of the CIA. Uh, her name is uh, Gina Haspel. So this, this senator asks her this question, very profound question. She says, do you believe the previous interrogation techniques were immoral. I'm not asking if they were legal, she says. I'm asking you if they were immoral. What a crazy question for a senator to ask someone who's testifying. I wanted to leap out of my chair and jump through the screen and ask the senator, what is your definition of morality? Where do you get your standard for morality, because how can you answer that question if you don't know what the standard is? That's like saying, are you going too fast? I don't know. I don't know what the speed limit is. Officer, sorry. Well, it's 30 and you're going 80. You might have paid attention to the sign, right? But if you don't know the standard, you can't live within it. And this is what the... the now director of the CIA, answered. She said, we should hold ourselves to the moral standard outlined in the Army Field Manual on interrogation techniques. And I thought, great, who wrote that and what is his standard? God's righteousness is the moral standard. God always does what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. But, you know, if Gina Haskell, uh, Haskell, yeah, Haspel, if she had said to the senator, well, I believe in the Bible, and the Bible says dot, 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 oh, man, you would all read about it in the news, wouldn't you? How could you quote the Bible? Well, okay, anyway, I'm getting off track. All right. So God is always right, and he's the standard of what is right. So in this context, with this definition of righteousness, we look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we could do 25 sermons on, okay? We're going to do one, so get ready. Okay, Romans chapter 3, verse 1. 
Then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? Listen to last week's sermon if that verse is like, what in the world? Verse 2, much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Okay, pause for a moment. Did you hear that? The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, with the word of God. That's significant. Can you imagine being trusted through history to ensure the scriptures are properly are the, the scriptures are properly translated and copied into the future? Handwritten over and over by people uh, with pens, not computers. They were faithful. They were significant. Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, Paul says, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Here Paul is telling us that God is faithful to his promises. Even if people don't believe what God is saying, if they're faithless to his word, God's truth is true even if no one believes it. It's like that deep philosophical question. If a tree falls in the woods and no one is around to hear it, did it make a noise? And the answer is yes. It made the noise, you just didn't hear it. God's truth is true even if every person says it's not true. God's righteousness prevails. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, okay, follow this, put your thinking caps on, what shall we say? Let me start again. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? I'm making God look good with my sin, right? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with say, saying their condemnation is just? So some people were trying to say to Paul, look, if, if my sin amplifies God's righteousness, then how can God punish me for my sin because I'm making him look good? That's like you, you commit a crime and you go and the police chase you and they get you and they arrest you and you're like, man, I made the police look good. So you can't punish me because I made you look good. Right? That doesn't make any sense, does it? What kind of argument is that? Paul tells us that the only way God can judge the world is based on his moral standard, his righteousness. No one gets a pass because their sinfulness reveals God's righteousness. So God is faithful in his promises, and he is righteous in his judgment. Now you may be thinking, Tim, I thought you said our significance was more important to God than our sinfulness, but so far, all you're talking about is our sinfulness. Well, here's the thing. Our God-created significance cannot be realized when sin is ruining our lives. God must act regarding our sinfulness 
in order for our significance to be experienced. So how, God, how does God act regarding our sinfulness so we can live out our significance? Because right, that's what we want, right? We want to live out our significance. We don't want to live in our sinfulness. Amen? All right, so uh, God's righteousness is unique to him. Okay, listen to this. this is, I'm going to read this really fast because it's pretty gruesome. It's pretty rough. So Paul writes in verse 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Eh, You know, see what I did there? Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's pretty grim, isn't it? Paul tells us that no one is righteous. Everyone is trapped in sin. Everyone is trapped in sin, and so God has to do something. In verse 23, Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God has to do something. God created us for significance in that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone created for significance, which is everyone, has fallen short of the glory of God. So this is the dilemma. On one hand, we're created for significance. On the other hand, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're trapped by our sinfulness. How does this dilemma get resolved? Significance and sinfulness. How does that dilemma get resolved. Well, one way this dilemma doesn't get resolved is by our own efforts. There's no work that we can do to make us righteous. No amount of good deeds will set us free from the trap of sin. This is what Paul says in Romans 19 and verse 19 and 20. Verse 20 says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Last week, we talked about justification. Two parts, right? Step one, God forgives our sin. Part two, God makes us righteous. So when we surrender our lives to Jesus, when we have believing faith, he forgives our sin and he makes us righteous. No work we can do can do that. We can't earn God's forgiveness or his righteousness. So we're created for significance and yet we're trapped in our sinfulness and there's nothing we can do about it. Sounds pretty bleak, doesn't it? But we want to be significant, amen? We want our God-created significance to be realized. So how can we experience then this justification, God's forgiveness and his righteousness, so that our sinfulness is dealt with? Verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, i.e. the Bible, bear witness to it. Verse 22, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So verse 22 says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We are made righteous through believing faith in Jesus. Remember Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation 
to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul says the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So this is believing faith. You didn't believe in Jesus, and now you do. You stop trying to figure out every detail about God, and now you believe Jesus loves you and is with you and went to the cross to pay for your sins. You're trying to rescue yourself, but now you realize only Jesus can rescue me. This is believing faith. So our significance and our sinfulness meet at the cross. God wants us to live out our significance. The righteous shall live by faith. And God wants us to be set free from our sinfulness so we can live out our significance. And so God deals with our sinfulness at the cross. Jesus communion is what it's all communion is what it is all about. Jesus died on the cross, paid for our sins. Our sinfulness was dealt with at the cross so we could experience our significance. At the cross, God's righteousness sets us free to be significant. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24, And are justified, forgiven and made righteous, are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption Jesus on the cross through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. He paid for our sins with his blood to be received by what? By faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Listen to this. So that he might be just, righteous, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So at the cross, God was just. He paid for sinfulness. And he was the justifier because it was his son who paid at the cross so that we could be set free to live out our significance. I hope that makes sense because that is so important. At the cross, your sinfulness and your significance meet. And your sinfulness is forgiven. And your significance is released. Our significance is more important to God than our sinfulness. What a great demonstration of love. That's how significant you are to God. Instead of you being on the cross, it was Jesus. So each of you are significant to God. Beauty with purpose. Beauty with purpose. Now in some churches, the pastor would then say, look to the person next to you and say, you are beautiful. But I won't do that. Because I don't know about you, but that makes me uncomfortable. But, but I can say it from here, because I can see all of you. You guys are beautiful. You can say it to me, too. Oh, thanks. Okay, awesome. 
All right, now in verse 27 and 28, Paul gives us a bit of a warning. Gives us a caution. He says this, Then what becomes of our boasting? What becomes of our boasting? Here's what he's talking about, I think. You all just said I was beautiful. And so now I walk around like, I'm beautiful. I'm beautiful. I am beautiful. I'm beautiful, I'm beautiful, I'm beautiful, I'm beautiful. And you're like, well, God made you beautiful. God who? I'm beautiful. See, we lose track of where that beauty and that purpose comes from. So it goes on to say, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith. We are, we are beautiful and with purpose by faith. We are forgiven and made righteous by faith apart from works of the law. If I'm beautiful, it's only because God has placed his beauty in me. If we are significant, it's only because God created us to be significant. Paul's telling us that God's righteousness received by us through believing faith does not give us the freedom to be what? To be self-righteous. So if you've received God's forgiveness and righteousness through believing faith, you've received the gift of eternal life and your life is no longer about you. It's about everyone else. You now get to help others connect with Jesus so they can know their significance. They can know they're created by God. They can know that they are beautiful and have purpose. But I think a lot of folks don't understand this, think that God is trying to catch them doing stuff that's wrong and destructive. That God is just that cosmic police officer trying to punish them every time they make a mistake. And unfortunately, sometimes the church can reinforce that. We become the sin police we tell the world how sinful they are, how short they've fallen of God's glory. And sometimes we leave out the part that God created them for significance, created in His image, created with beauty and purpose. We need to help people understand that they're significant that their significance is more important to God than their sinfulness. That's what the cross is all about. You know, there's this guy named Nathaniel in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus met a man named Philip. Philip came to know Jesus, surrendered to him, began to follow him. And then Philip went to his friend Nathaniel. And listen how this story goes. It's in John chapter 1, if you want to Read along, but it says this, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? In other words, Philip, I just don't want to hear it. And Philip said to him, 
You're a creep. You're a dirty, rotten sinner. Get your act together, and I'll introduce you to Jesus one day. No, he just said, Philip, or, or Nathaniel, just come and see. Come and see. And then listen to what happens. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him before Nathanael said or did anything and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, whom there is no deceit. Jesus wasn't focused on Nathanael's past or his sin. He was focused on Nathanael's significance. Look, it's an Israelite indeed. A man who has no deceit in him. He was, he was focused on on Nathaniel's significance. Have you ever had this happen to you? you someone compliments you, someone, someone praises you for something good you've done, and you're like, no, I'm, I'm really not that good. I'm, I'm kind of a jerk. And, and you're like, what are you talking about? Just don't get in my business, right? And so Nathaniel said to Jesus, how do you know me? You don't really know me, Jesus. I'm not an Israelite with no deceit. You don't know who I am. And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. See, Jesus saw Nathanael before Nathanael even knew it. Jesus saw you and me before before we even knew Jesus. He saw us, and he knew our significance, and he went to the cross to pay for our sinfulness because our significance is more important to God than our sinfulness. Our message to the world is not turn or burn. You've heard that before. Our message to the world is this. Come and see Jesus. You are significant to him. And he wants to know you. In fact, he already knows you. He sees you. And you know what? Jesus, just like he saw us, he sees your family members who don't know Jesus. He sees your uh, neighbors. He sees your co-workers. He sees even your enemies. He sees your classmates. And, and he wants to say to them, behold, you were created for significance. You have beauty with purpose. And then finally, in the last verse of the chapter, Paul tells us that God's righteousness sets us free to be faithful. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Our believing faith results in God making us righteous. Our significance is more important than our sinfulness. And they meet at the cross. And we're set free from sinfulness so we can be significant. And our significance is realized when we faithfully follow Jesus. When we put our faith to work. The righteous live by faith. So when we serve together, when we take risks together, when we go into the valleys together, when we go into the darkness together to help others escape evil and brokenness and despair that is crushing them, we show them they're significant and that Jesus wants to meet them at the cross so they can live out that significance. So we go together with a dangerous faith And we say to people, come and see the Jesus who's transformed us. Let's pray.
as we uh, get ready to pray, I just want you to let the, let the Holy Spirit give you a name or a face of someone who needs someone to come to them and say, come and see Jesus. The Lord's given us faces or names or both. And so, Lord, I just pray for these folks you've put on our radar screens who need to hear that they're significant, created by God with beauty and purpose, and who need to hear an invitation to come and see the Jesus of the Bible, the true Jesus. So, Lord, I pray for them. I pray that their ears would be open to hear and their hearts would be open to respond. And, Lord, would you help all of us be courageous, be dangerous, be filled with grace and love to make that invitation, to listen to your voice and just speak the words that you give us. Come and see you are significant. Jesus loves you, created you for purpose, created you with beauty. Lord, help us, give us a dangerous faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Thanks for listening today. Subscribe to the podcast now, and for more info, including sermon outlines, visit our website at www.kurtlandchristian.org.